the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday Message. The Bay Area has a rich diversity of churches and ministries that serve the community in Jesus' name. And here at KFAX, we love to shine a spotlight onto the great things God is doing through the kingdom work of pastors and ministry leaders. Each weekday, a pastor or leader is interviewed, and here on the Sunday Message, we feature a sermon or presentation from that leader to get you better acquainted with churches who will welcome you to worship, and ministry opportunities that invite your involvement. Now, here's the host of this Sunday message, David Naderhood. And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message. This is Dave Naderhood, and it's my privilege to be with you at this time every Sunday to highlight or spotlight uh, one of the churches in the Bay Area or one of the ministries that we have here just an opportunity for us to uh, give God a chance to shine, to see what he's doing in different corners around the Bay. And this past week was no exception. We had a chance to hear from Pastor Michael Snurley. He is senior pastor over at Red Hill Church in San Anselmo. And uh, he's here in studio with us, actually, to uh, get ready to hear one of the sermons that he preached not long ago at Red Hill Church. Pastor Michael, welcome to the Ministry of the Week. Thanks so much for having me. As uh, we shared in the interviews, and if anybody missed those, you can actually hear the podcast over at kfax.com. Just look under the Ministry of the Week tab, and you can find the, all the archives there of the Ministry of the Week interviews. But if you missed those interviews, we got to hear a little bit of Pastor Michael's story and his uh, his trip west from, from Kentucky, of all places. And I always think it's got to be a little bit of a culture shock to come from Kentucky out to California. Was it? Uh, it was a little bit. I, I think it can be exaggerated sometimes. I, I, you know, to me, I grew up in America and I live in America. So there's a lot of similarities. I mean, of course, there's some things. I would say the biggest thing would be just how unique Marin is, even to the Bay Area. That was that was probably, you know, yeah. what accounted for all the shock. It would be just if anybody from the Bay Area moved to Marin, there'd be quite a few differences. Many of them excellent, great, wonderful. Uh, and that's why we love where we live. Mm. Uh, but but certainly different than many other places on in, in the U.S. Right, and definitely what you just described is is true around the Bay, um, where you could make general statements about like Midwest culture or Southern culture, but the Bay Area seems to have that sort of percolating effect of microcultures, and so even the neighborhood that I'm in in Oakland is quite distinct from other neighborhoods in Oakland, but. Uh, there are microclimates weather-wise here, and there are microcultures, and uh, and maybe that's a good place to just share a moment today. When you when you look at San Anselmo and the and Marin County area, we talked a little bit off air. You have uh, quite a few celebrities that live up there, uh, but besides celebrity culture, what are some of the other things that intrigue you about that area? Well, I think obviously the geography the mm-hmm. just the mountains you're always near water hikes are always uh, easily accessible so we just love being outdoors we love um 
that whole aspect of it. And I think that's definitely creates part of the culture of Marin, yeah. uh, is, is the hiking culture, the, uh, just the outdoors nature, mm-hmm. uh, side of it. Um, I would say also another part of, of Marin culture that we found to be very intriguing is that you, we, we meet the most interesting people because I don't know where we grew up, you know, you, you, you could kind of make it having an average job. You cannot make it in Marin having an average job. You right. have to be, you have to excel at what you do. So mm-hmm. that means every person, almost every person we meet has a phenomenal story. They've, they've climbed Everest. You know, they've started multi-million dollar tech firms and they've sold them and now they teach elementary school. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's almost, if you can get to know people and get just below the surface, uh, we have been overwhelmed really by the amount of amazing wonderful people that we've met in Marin. Mm. And that that's an in- interesting thing that, that like there are no average people in my town. It's like almost a Garrison Keillor statement, you know, yeah. where all the children are above average. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's really interesting and uh, and it's it's one of the things that we love. So we feel unbelievably blessed to have the opportunity to raise our children in Marin County with all mm. of the great elements of that county. And, and being able to raise our children in that environment for us, it's uh, it's something that we we truly treasure. And I would think too, if you weren't um, if you weren't overwhelmed by the sort of powerful simplicity of the gospel, uh, you know, I, I know I've I've heard your sermons. I, I think you, you just solidly keep the focus on what God is saying in His Word and make it applicable to people's lives. Uh, but I mean, sometimes preachers feel the need to like sort of amplify through their own lens somehow uh, to make the scripture seem larger than life or something. And I mean, this is a, this is a particularly a context that's, that's already larger than life. Hollywood is the backdrop of sort of Marin. I mean, lots of movies are actually shot there and things like that. But now, you know, to, to try to, to try to add glamour to the gospel just wouldn't really work. No. <laughs> it's not a place where that needs to have uh, showbiz tacked on to a sermon, right? We've given up trying to compete with the culture. Not that we ever tried, but mm. we, we don't want to compete. We don't want to try to do a better TV show or a better you know, film spot or anything. We just want to simply communicate the gospel through preaching, through mm. prayer, and through praise. Mm. And uh, we feel like... The, there's power in the gospel. I mean, we just have a simple faith in the words of our Lord in Scripture, where he says that there's power in the gospel, we believe it. Where he says, when um, when I speak, my sheep hear my voice, we believe it. So we believe that if we just simply preach the, the word yeah. and God's people are there, they'll hear it. And we don't, again, yeah, we don't have to dress it up. We don't have to make it something uh, that is, quote unquote, appealing. We just simply speak the word of the Lord. And we believe his his children respond. That's just the way it works. And even if they woke up that morning completely separated from the gospel, mm-hmm. maybe this is the time when they hear the gospel message that they respond. So, uh, and 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 I am certainly aware of the fact that it will not be because of any wonderful thing I say or how I'm dressed or how I package it or how we come across as a church. It will just simply be the power that exists in the gospel itself. So our faith rests in the Lord. And in what he said, and so we we just really have a very simple approach to ministry, to be quite honest, uh, where it's just a simple reliability on what we've read in the scripture. Mm. Beautiful, and and not dressing it up, but actually uh, uh, trimming back to the the, the the raw simplicity of scripture, um, uh, folks. If that is uh, striking a chord with your heart, and if you are disconnected from the church for any reason, uh, as I've shared many times uh, on and off the air, we know that. 20 to 30% of our audience 
at any given time is not participating in a local congregation. And part of the reason we have this program is to uh, not just let those who are Christ followers uh, know how to be praying for churches all around the Bay, but also to specifically invite you, if you're listening today and you don't have a church home, maybe you left church a long time ago because it got hurt for some reason or another, or maybe you're spiritually seeking God and you're tuned in today to just wonder, is there a place here in the Bay Area for me? And maybe you live up in Marin County and you really are just on a quest to find out more about God's truth. Well, if you are wanting to find a place that that is uh, just simply teaching the Word of God simply, I can't think of a better place for you to go than Red Hill Church. You can find out more about them online at redhillchurch.com. Uh, they're located in San Anselmo, uh, just out Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. Is that right, Michael? Correct, yes. And, um, and the website's really a great place to get more information and to listen to some other sermons. But we're going to hear a message right now from Pastor Michael and uh, if you don't mind, Michael, just uh, open us with a brief word of prayer, and, and that'll take us into the Word today. My pleasure. Father, we're thankful that you have spoken to us and that you have given us this book, which contains your thoughts, your words, your hopes, your dreams for us. And uh, this is exactly what you want us to know. So, God, I pray that as we open the Word together now, you would do what you do. You would speak you would draw people to yourself. You would convict people of sin. You would encourage those who are uh, discouraged. And God, you would use this message to build up your kingdom one soul at a time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Michael. Thanks for being with us in studio. And uh, now as we go into uh, God's word, uh, may God's grace and mercy and peace be with each one of us. Uh, once again, this is the KFAX Ministry of the Week Sunday message with a message from Pastor Michael Snurley from Red Hill Church in San Anselmo. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So believers all around the world today are dedicating time in their services to pray for those who are believers in Jesus who are, who are being persecuted for their faith. And that can look a lot of different ways. I mean, persecution can come from the government. It may be illegal to share the gospel. It may be illegal to own a Bible. It may be illegal to gather with other Christians. And so the government can impose fines and penalties and imprisonment and beatings and sometimes even death. But there can also just be the persecution that comes from people not welcoming you because you're a believer. So people get kicked out of a family because of their faith in Christ. Or a pastor in northern India whose name is Pastor Suda, and he goes to different villages around where he lives, and he just goes and he tells people about Jesus. Well, he went into one village, and he was beat uh, to within an inch of his life. He was beaten so badly, he was, he was almost killed uh, because of the beating. And this is just people from the village. It wasn't the police necessarily, just people from the village who didn't want him to come back ever. They wanted to send him a message. They don't receive his message. They don't uh, want his his influence there. Well, one of the the leaders of that uh, group that did that to him uh, eventually felt some sense of conviction about leaving someone to die. And so they invited him into their house to, to, to heal him up, you know, like to uh, clean his wounds. And when they were expecting him to be angry at them and to lash out at them for what they had done, he actually responded in love and forgiveness. 
And so those that family became the first members of that church in that village uh, because of his witness for Christ. So as we as we pray for the persecuted church, I want to remind us to pray for two elements of the persecuted church. We want to pray for those who are persecuted because we want to pray that they would be sustained, that they would continue to show love and display forgiveness in the face of anger and hate and, you know, pain. But we also want to remember to pray for those who are persecuting. That church was started with a faithful pastor who was willing to be persecuted and started and founded by those who were persecuting. So we should always remember those who are persecuting because they may be the ones who lead to the revival that that we pray happens all over the world. There's a newsletter Voice of the Martyrs puts out regularly. This will help you stay connected to what's going on all around the world. Voice of the Martyrs has uh, representatives all over the world. You can actually write letters to those who are in prison because of Google Translator. You type in what you want, and then it translates it into the language in which they'll receive it in prison. And then it prints the letter out, and now they're getting a letter in their own heart language. So there's a lot of different things we can be doing as believers who live here, but but really the most important thing is what we're going to be doing right now. And that's, that is we're going to pray. So let's pray now together. Father, we praise you this morning because you are in control of the locks. You are the one who oversees the movement and the flow of all the rivers of our lives. And God, you're the one who opens the gates at the right time. You're the one who closes them at the right time. But we're reminded this morning from from Daniel that you are the one who is in control of the locks. You are the one who is in control of opening and moving and working and accomplishing your will and your sovereignty through our lives. Father, we praise you this morning in that you have chosen the weak and the humble and the meek and the gentle and the rejected things of this world through which to proclaim the good news of the coming of your son. Every Christmas, we were reminded that Jesus, your son, the very son of God, did not come to earth in the fanciest hospital on earth, but he was born in a stable. He demonstrates this theme of the Bible that it's it's the lowly, it's the meek, it's the weak. And God, we are reminded this day of the persecuted church, that it is people that are humble enough and gentle enough and faithful enough that even in the face of persecution, they continue to be faithful. And it's through them and it's through it's through us, God, it's through us that you proclaim this message You don't need celebrities. You don't need millions of dollars. You just need people who are willing to humble themselves before you and be faithful even unto death. So, Father, we praise you this morning for that wonderful plan. It is it is truly a beautiful plan. We love how you work it in this world. Father, we confess this morning that. We often think we have a better idea of how things should go, that we want the gates of the locks to open up immediately, which would spell disaster and ruin for us, but we want them to open immediately nonetheless. We confess that we are not always content with your plan of choosing those who are humble and weak and rejected and gentle. We like things to be a little more bombastic, a little more glossy, 
So God, I pray that this day would be a, an opportunity for us to realign ourselves in accordance with your plan, in accordance with your purpose, in accordance with the way you're doing things. And for us, I pray that that would lead to a humbling. God, I pray that it would lead to patience as we wait upon you and as we look to you and to you alone to, to do whatever it is that you're doing in and through us. Father, we thank you for this day of worship. And Father, we say thank you for the witness of those who are following you in faithfulness and even in persecution. It's an encouragement to us. I pray that it would not be anything other than encouragement, that it would just be a, a way for us to be spurred on to faithfulness. And so, God, this morning we pray for them. We pray for those pastors. We pray for those believers. We pray for those churches that today live in the face of great threat or God are even living under the burden of persecution. And we pray for their perseverance. We pray for their patience. We pray, God, that no matter what is done to them, that their hearts would remain soft, that their hearts would remain full of your love, that their hearts would be overflowing with your love, that they would not respond in kind. As they are hit, they would not seek to, to hit out. But God, I pray that the more evil that is poured out upon them, the more your love would flow from them. And Father, I pray that again, this would be an example and a motivation for us. That even in the face of injustice in our own lives, or if we feel like we've been wronged by someone and that evil has been done to us, God, I pray that we would respond in the same way. That no matter what amount of evil is poured out upon us, that love would flow from us. Father, this is not anything that any of us can do on our own. This is not something we can work hard enough to produce. We need you. The only way that we respond in love in the face of evil is through the power of your spirit. And that's why we are praying, God. We are praying that you would fill us with your spirit. And we pray that you'd fill your church all around the world with your spirit to respond in love in the face of evil and hate. Father, we want to pray this morning for those who are doing the persecuting. And Father, I pray that in, in the light of the love that is shown to them, they would see Jesus. They would see Jesus in the face of love. They would see Jesus in the light that is being reflected back to them in this wonderful way. And God, I pray that this would be how revival comes. Father, now as we turn to the Scriptures, I pray that our hearts and minds would be tuned toward You, that we would, we would be ready to hear from You. And God, that You would use me as, as a spokesperson as your mouthpiece, and that I would simply just be the means of communication for your message. And I pray that it would come from you, through me, to your people. So God, please use me in this way. Again, I don't deserve to be in that place, but you've put me here. And so I pray that in this moment, that's what would happen. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this, in this magazine here, you know, a lot of, there's a lot going on in Iraq and Syria, right? And, and essentially there's a Christian exodus out of Iraq. There, there have been a lot of believers traditionally for thousands and thousands, you know, for really since the advent of Christ. There have been believers living in Iraq, specifically northern Iraq. Uh, and there's been a mass exodus of those believers out of Iraq. So there's a lot going on in Iraq and Syria. Well, there's a story in here about a Syrian pastor 
who said that, you know, obviously Syria is not known for being a place uh, of, 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 you know, large churches, many churches, etc., etc. And he said, we have been praying for revival. We have been praying for an opportunity for as many people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in our country as could possibly happen for years and years and years. And he said, it's finally happening. You have so many people displaced. You have so many people in need in Syria that people are open to hearing. And, you know, there's stories of people from ISIS coming to faith in these magazines as people are willing to take that bold step. But here's what that pastor said. He said, we've been praying for revival for years and years and years. And in our mind, we thought this is what revival would look like. We thought this is how revival would come. But he said, this is actually how it's coming. In this really broken, strange way, God's using this horrible season and time in the life of Syria to bring about this, the start of a revival, right? And that's how God often works. And in that video, it closes with this pastor because you know what? The truth is, I feel this too. When you hear of the great faith of these people who are, who are faithful unto death, who are willing to lay down their lives, there can be guilt that comes, right? Because you look at it like, wow, like there's, they're just so, such wonderful believers. How could I ever be like these people? And at the end of the video, the, the pastor who was the one persecuted, who uh, is now the pastor of the church in this village, this ends with a real simple quote, and I love it. It's, it's going to become a mantra of mine. He said, I am a simple man, and without prayer I am nothing. And I love that quote, right? I mean, he's no different than you. He's no different than me. He's a simple person. I am a simple man. And without prayer, I'm nothing. And I want you to remember that even about me, right? If you think, oh, well, Michael, he's the one who stands up there and he preaches and he's up in front of everybody. Listen, I'm a simple man, very simple man. Winston Churchill once made fun of one of his uh, enemies this way, but I'll wear it like a badge, okay? Winston Churchill once said, oh, yeah, that guy, he's a very humble man with much to be humble about. That's how I'll characterize my own self. You know, I want to be a humble man because I have much to be humble about. I'm a simple man. And without prayer, I'm nothing. Right. However, God uses me. If you see anything good in my own life or if you see anything good in other believers life, like Pastor Suda, the one in the video, it's because God uses them because somehow, somewhere, somebody's been praying for them or they've been praying for themselves. But 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 the Lord uses these prayers to build up his church, to build up his people. Let's turn to Isaiah 39. That's where we are today. Isaiah chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious soil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to see me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to, Ezra, to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, after three chapters of being a positive example, Hezekiah is now a negative example. 
for us about how to live a life of faith. In chapters 36, 37, and 38, Hezekiah was a positive example. We could look to Hezekiah to see how to live a life of faith. What does it mean to live in trust? Well, you just look at what Hezekiah did in 36, 37, and 38. He was a positive example. Now in chapter 39, he reverts back to being a negative example. Hezekiah displays a lack of trust. Hezekiah displays a lack of faith. So let's go ahead and jump into the message. I have three points this morning. First one, point number one. You are saved by faith, not by works. You are saved by faith, not by works. Often, when we think of salvation by works, when you hear that phrase, salvation by works, I'm assuming your mind goes to the place where you're thinking of trying to do enough good things to earn your salvation. Right? You're trying to tip the scales enough in your favor. So if I say, you know, people are trying to be saved by works, you might think, well, they're just trying to do enough good things so that when they meet God in the end, God will say, hey, you've been good enough. You can come and live in my presence forever. But listen, salvation by works from a biblical perspective is, is more than that. Because salvation is more than just rescue from end time judgment. From the biblical perspective, salvation is like a humongous term. And so often we just want to make it about end time salvation. But from the biblical perspective, it's a huge term. We talked about how in 38, when Hezekiah was healed, he was saved because a healing from sickness is a type of salvation, is it not? And a rescue from poverty is a type of salvation. And we could go on and on and on about all the different kinds of salvation being rescued from the most powerful army on earth, which Assyria represented at that time is salvation. So when I say you are saved by faith, not by works, I mean it in the biggest possible sense. Salvation will come to your life by faith, not by works. The plans and purposes of God will be accomplished by faith in your life, not by works. This passage is another example of the people of God choosing to be saved by works and not by faith. Let me explain. Let me let me set us where we are historically in, in Isaiah 39. Uh, the Assyrian threat is still future. Right. We, we read in 36 and 37 about how the Lord delivered his people from the threat of Assyria. That happens later than 39. 39 is happening before that historically, chronologically. Right. So the Assyrian threat is still future. Merodach Baladon, who you guys probably all know, right? Let me tell you who he was. He was the William Wallace of his day. You guys know William Wallace, Braveheart? He was the most famous rebel. Listen, everybody hated Assyria. You've read Jonah, right? Jonah didn't like Assyria. No one liked Assyria. No one did. Assyria made no friends. They hadn't read that book by Stephen Covey, right? You know how to make friends and influence people or whatever. They didn't read that book. They just made enemies. That's all they did. And they didn't care. No one liked him. So Assyria was, was situated in northern Iraq. Babylon situated in southern Iraq. Assyria could never really exercise total dominion over Babylon. Babylon always continued to exist. And the king at that time was this guy named Merodach Baladon. And he was like William Wallace. He kept sticking it to him. He kept defeating them in little battles here and there. He kept kind of like really putting pressure on them. So Merodach Baladon was the guy everybody looked up to. Everybody was like, ooh, that guy, he's the greatest. He's the best. He's the coolest. He's really sticking it to this nation of people that we all hate. And he's the one who's the most successful. He's the one who's the most victorious against this, this, this country we all hate. So Merodach Baladon was the rock star among people who had not yet been conquered by Assyria. 
And so we read here that Merodach Baladon, the rock star, the William Wallace, the famous one, the notorious and, and blessed rebel, sends envoys to Hezekiah because they had heard he had been sick, but then he had been healed. And so Hezekiah was flattered. And instead of using this as an opportunity to praise the Lord, what, is, what does Hezekiah do? He's like, ooh, it's Merodach Baladon. How kind of him to send envoys to me with letters and gifts to say thank you for being healed. Really, in my humble opinion, what should have happened is we should have a replay of chapter 38, verses 16 through 20. If you just flip back there, what, what, is, what is Hezekiah doing now that he's been healed? He's praising the Lord. He's giving the Lord all the credit and glory for being healed. What does he do when Merodach Baladon shows up with envoys saying, hey, we're, we're glad you've been healed. What does he do? Does he sing the same psalm? Does he say, hey, guys, you know what? I wrote this awesome psalm that talks about how this really happened. It was the Lord who did it. He led me into a really deep, dark place. But then he revealed that he was going to heal me and add years to my life. And so we praise him because we know that he's in control of all life and death. Is that what he does? Why doesn't he give the same psalm? It's the same reason they're coming to hear what he has to say. What he does is he tries to build that alliance. It's like, oh, Merodach Baladon, the big bad Rebel has come. You guys come look at all my storehouses. We'll count shields together. Maybe we could form a team. You guys are really good against the Assyrians. We don't like the Assyrians. We know they're coming. Let's form a team. And so we've talked about how Hezekiah had this tendency to want to form coalitions. He went down to Egypt. Didn't work. So now Babylon's here. He wants, he wants to form up this, this tight coalition. And here's essentially what Isaiah tells him. He says, you want Babylon? You'll get Babylon. You want to join forces with Babylon? You'll get more of Babylon than you, you could ever want. You're going to get them in spades. They're going to be all over this land. They're going to empty every storehouse they just saw. It's all going back to Babylon. You want to make friends with Babylon? That's what you get. But this is another attempt by Hezekiah to build that alliance, to, to save himself by works, to try to really accentuate this partnership with the most famous rebel against Assyria at the time. Hezekiah wanted to impress his esteemed visitors with the greatness of his little kingdom. And this represents salvation by works. The most famous biblical example of this theme that I'm talking about, because it gets picked up all throughout the scripture, is Genesis 16. It's Abraham and Hagar. We know from Genesis 12, the Lord gives Abraham promises about building up a kingdom through him and that all the families on the earth would be blessed through a seed. But then we know that Abraham and Sarah realize that they're getting really old and that maybe God made a mistake. Or that maybe, you know, like just to borrow what Daniel's saying, they come up against the wall and they say, well, this plan isn't going to work. He said we're going to be, all the families on earth will be blessed through us, that he's going to use our seed. But maybe there's a plan B that we haven't thought of. And so they get together and Sarah and Abraham agree, well, maybe you should go to my maidservant Hagar. And through her, your line will be built up and maybe God's promises will be fulfilled through Hagar, right? They start to try to outwit God. They try to start to outsmart him. So they realize there's an issue. They need to be saved from the issue. So they start using their own brains and minds instead of resting and waiting and relying on God. And so they gave birth to Ishmael, which means they gave birth to Ishmael, which means Ishmael's alive, which means this Ishmael's never going away. So the fruit of them trying to save themselves by works is actually still with us even to this day. Instead of resting and relying on the promises of God, they tried to push forward using their thinking they were smarter, thinking they could figure it out. 
So salvation by works is thinking that you can do enough to protect yourself, to save yourself in this life. It's taking matters in your own hands. It's trying to outwit God. Listen, we plant the seeds. God brings the growth. You don't bring the growth. If you think you're ever in a place where you bring the growth, you're in a bad spot. You're about to give birth to Ishmael. You're about to show the Babylonians all your treasures. It's not a good place to be. Whatever good has been accomplished in your life has been the product of your education, your connections, your hard work, and God's grace. Whenever you have been healed, it has been the product of the doctors and the medicines and God's grace. You have been saved by faith, not by works. It is not our salvation is in no way tied only to what we do. Point number two, your faith journey will include triumphs and failures. Your faith journey will include triumphs and failures. There has only been one perfect person to ever walk this earth, and it is not you. And I wish Hezekiah would would consistently and always and forever be a positive example about how to live a life of faith, but he's not because we got chapter 39 and we got chapter 22 and we have occurrence after occurrence of Hezekiah trying to lean on his own, you know, brilliance and trying to build these coalitions to stave off Assyria when in the end it was ultimately what the Lord was going to do. And your story is the same. For every time we can look at your life as an example about how to live by faith and how to trust the Lord and how to respond kindly and in love and in grace and in gentleness, we can also look at your life and see a story about how not to respond. So the truth is, each one of our journeys is going to include triumphs and failures. And so how do we deal with the guilt of our failures? How do we deal with the guilt that comes from us being in chapter 39? How do you, how do we deal with the guilt of blowing it? Well, for me, it always comes back to how I identify myself. The antidote to guilt is your identity. How do you identify yourself? Who are you? This is the only way I have found in my own life to be able to stave off the attack of the enemy to, 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 to crush me with guilt. Listen, your identity is not dependent on your performance. Hezekiah's identity does as a child of God does not change because he absolutely blew it. And I mean, listen, we could go through and look at all the ways Hezekiah blew it. He blew it from the beginning of this chapter to the end. I mean, verse eight is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Isaiah pronounces judgment against Hezekiah and his kingdom. And Hezekiah says the word of the Lord is good because at least my lifetime will be peaceful. I mean, how selfish is that? He's saying your sons are going to be led to Babylon. Some of your own children will be led to Babylon. They're going to become eunuchs, which means the the men will be castrated. There's the potential that your seed, the seed of David, the seed of promise through which the promises were given to Abraham, that seed could be cut off. There's the threat of that if everybody becomes unable to bear children. Hezekiah's like, that's not a big deal. At least, you know, I got, what, 15 more good years? So Hezekiah blows it and he blows it big, but his identity does not change because our identity is not dependent on our performance. Your performance, your life, the way that you live flows out of your identity. You see, you can't get it mixed up. It's really important. They have to be put in their proper place. Your performance does not create your identity. Your identity creates your performance. 
Your performance flows from your identity. Your, per, your identity doesn't flow from your performance, right? It flows from your identity. To, to, to show you this biblically, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. The Bible has a lot to say about our behavior. The, the Bible does have a lot to say about our performance, about the way that we live. But I want us to notice it flows from our identity, not the other way around. Our performance does not create our identity. It flows from our identity. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Or to put it differently, therefore, as beloved children, that is your identity. You are a beloved child of God. That will never change. That is who you are. As beloved children, be imitators of God. To be an imitator of God is about the most broad brushstroke way you can say how to live as a believer. How should you live as a believer? You should be an imitator of God. But you being an imitator of God flows from the identity of you being a beloved child of God. So it's not saying, therefore, be imitators of God so that you might become beloved children of God. It's saying, as already being identified as beloved children of God, therefore now be imitators of God. Your performance, your behavior flows from your identity. So always, always, always rest in your identity, never in your performance. If you're resting in the way that you, you know, if your faith is in how you live, you are going to be all over the place because you live all over the place. You have good days, you have bad days. Your, you know, your status as a human being will fluctuate as much as your performance. But if your identity rests in what God says about you, then that will never change. You are a dearly loved child of God. That is who you are. You are a forgiven sinner. Listen, you are not a worthless loser. You are not someone who has wasted your life. You are not someone who has destroyed everything God has built. You are not someone who has ruined your children, right? Those are all based on your performance. Your identity must flow from what God says about you. I looked in this book, I've read it a couple times, and I don't see anywhere it says that I'm a worthless loser. So why would I believe that lie even for a second? I don't see anywhere in this book where it says that I've ruined my children based on, you know, my poor parenting days, which are quite a few. Still don't see it. It's not in there. So why would I identify myself that way? That I'm someone who's ruining my kids. No, I'm not. That's not who I am. I have tough days. But I'm a dearly loved child of God. I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm an inheritor of all the riches and storehouses of God's grace. These are all great things. These are all things God said about me. That's how I'm going to identify myself. So when the guilt comes for my performance, I have to say, you know what? It was never really about my performance ever anyway. It's about who I am. It's about my identity. And yes, I've made mistakes. The Bible says for us to confess our sins. The Bible says for us to be honest and realistic about our shortcomings. There's no doubt about it. I'm not trying to overlook it. But what I'm not going to do is put my identity in my triumphs or in my failures. And it's important to remember that God's grace is greater than your sin. So even when you blow it big, when you, when you Hezekiah blow it from Isaiah 39, and he blew it big. Even when you blow it big, listen, God's grace is greater than your sin. Romans 5.20 says that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. If you think you can out God's grace, then you don't know my God. You don't know the God of the Scripture. 
You cannot outsin his grace. God's grace abounds where sin abounds. The more you sin, the more grace you need. And so instead of wallowing in guilt and shame, just ask for more grace. When you blow it, you need grace. You need lots of grace. And if you blow it big, you need even more grace. How does the Bible say we access grace? Just humbly ask. That's all you got to do is humbly ask. So instead of wallowing in guilt and shame, just ask for more grace. Instead of fretting how you've ruined your children, pray that God's grace would be at work in their life. Listen, your children are not going to turn out okay unless God's grace is at work in their life. They're not going to turn out okay because you're a perfect parent. Like you could even be the most perfect parent in the world, but if God's grace is not active in their life, not, you know, you're doomed. You could be a terrible parent, but God's grace involved in a wonderful and a powerful and amazing way, they're going to be okay. <laughs> so instead of fretting about how you're ruining everything, pray that God's grace would be at work greater than you're ruining. Instead of fretting that you've ruined your chance to give God glory like Hezekiah did here. I mean, I think we can all relate to this, right? An opportunity in which we've seen God work big, in which we give Him credit and glory maybe in front of the church, but then someone at work asks us and we're like, oh yeah, I was on a great regimen and the doctor gave me and I stretched and exercised and now look, my knee's all better. Whereas at church we were saying it was the Lord. It was totally a miracle. I mean, I don't even know how else to explain it. So instead of fretting that you've ruined your chance to give God glory, pray that God's, pray that God's grace would be at work in the situation. So wherever you feel like you've ruined something, wherever you feel guilt and shame coming on, that, that things are broken because of what you've done, just pray for more and more grace to be poured out on that situation. God's grace is greater than your sin. It always has been, always will be. And point number three. Navigating the perilous waters of success. Navigating the perilous waters of success. I want you to think of your life as a boat on the ocean. Your life is the boat. And what's going on in your life is like the ocean. Okay, your life, your boat is in the ocean. And I think we can all relate to times in our lives when we feel like the waves of the sea are crushing over the boat. The storm is so great, the storm is so powerful, it seems like it's going to capsize our boat. It's going to, there's imminent danger because the waves are so big that we're going to be crashed on the rocks. The, the, the ship is going to be lost. It's all going to be over because of, of how upset the sea is. And we don't like those times because we realize how dangerous they are. We realize that, 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 that really there's an imminence to the danger that at any moment the, the ship could sap, capsize. All could be lost because of the humongous waves. So what we want, we want calm waters. But I'm telling you that calm waters can be just as dangerous. There are waters that are calm on the surface, but with dangerous currents underneath. Just because the sea is calm does not mean that it's not moving. I mean, if you've ever been over by the Golden Gate Bridge, when the tide is moving, you can almost see the force of water rushing into the bay. I mean, billions of gallons a second of water when, the, when it's going to be high tide flowing into the bay and then on low tide when it's flowing out the same thing i mean you can just watch this just the force of the water could be flat calm on the surface 
But massive currents are moving this water in and out of the bay and in and out, you know, of the coast and the sea. We can see that the huge waves are dangerous. It is harder to see the threat of the calm waters. And as a pastor, I can say unequivocally that the most dangerous threat to a person's faith is success. The most dangerous threat to your faith is when things go really well. When you get healed. Like Hezekiah. The most dangerous threat to your faith is when like the really famous rebel, the Merodach Baladon shows up and gives you a little flattery and compliments. That's when it's most dangerous to your faith. Now listen, I'm not saying it's fatal. <laughs> I'm not saying we should shun success. I'm not saying we should be afraid of success because it'll kill us. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's dangerous. I'm saying it's most dangerous. And you might be like, well, Michael, but it's so calm. It's so, this is the way I've wanted it. I've worked so hard to, to get these calm waters. I'm saying it's dangerous. You still need to be aware. You still need to be, you still need to recognize that just because the waves aren't big doesn't mean you can't be crashed up against the rocks. That tide might be pulling you real hard into the rocks right there. You still need to be aware. You still need to watch with prayer, as Jesus would say. Learning to navigate the perilous waters of success is a mark of maturity. And here's the threat. It's the threat of stoking your pride. Listen, when the waves are big, it often leads to brokenness. And that's actually not a terrible place to be. In Isaiah, as we keep reading through Isaiah and we get toward like 57, 58, the Lord says, this is who I'm close to. I'm close to those who are crushed in spirit. I'm close to the humble. So when, when the waves are big and you realize you have no power and control in this earth and you're crushed and you're humble, this, this, that's a great place to be spiritually. And I know from like a practical, you know, sort of American stance, it's not a great place to be, but spiritually it's a great place to be. That's, you, 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 you're, you're in the wheelhouse of where the Lord meets his people. And the threat of when things are calm is that it can begin to stoke your pride. You're not humble anymore. Be like, look how hard I've worked. Look at what I've been able to build and accomplish. I've been able to make the waters calm. My life is so much easier now. Look how, look at, look at all that I've done. Used to be crazy, but then, you know, I did this and I did this and now it's calm. And then a Merodach Baladon shows up and is like, wow, look, you're healed. And instead of giving praise and honor to the Lord, you start showing him your treasures. We have to be aware of letting flattery and compliments becoming fuel for our pride. For Hezekiah, his strength had returned, his storehouses were full, and his little kingdom was well-armed and confident, and it was a dangerous place. I mean, if you look at verse 3, I think verse 3 tells the whole story. When Isaiah asked what's going on, then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And here's Hezekiah's response. And I'm going to add my own embellishment. They came to me. They came to me from a distant land, from Babylon. They came to me from Hollywood. The record executives came to me. The magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle sent their writer to me. Right? I mean, he's, he's like, he's just, he's breaking. He's like, they came from a distant, like from Babylon. You know, Babylon, Merodach, Baladon. Oh, man, they're going to make such good movies about that guy. And he came to me. He wanted to look around. What's the big deal? You know how you guys are all closet fans of Taylor Swift? Don't lie. Like, we're in church, man. 
you know you're all closet fans of Taylor Swift. If I were to say to you, are you a fan of Taylor Swift? You'd be like, no, not really. No. If it comes on the radio, I won't change it. It's all closet fans. But when it comes on the radio, you're like, yeah, you know, if we had shake it off, come off through the speakers right now, you guys would all be dancing on the chairs like a bunch of banshees. (laughs) The truth is, I think we're all closet fans of ourselves. We're all big closet fans of ourselves. Say, hey, tell me about you. Ah, you know, it's not that good. But deep down, you know, and sometimes we'll say people are cocky and brash because they wear that on their on the surface. You know, they're huge fans of themselves and they let you know about it. They'll tell you about it. It's on the surface. But I'm telling you, I don't care who you are. I don't care how close to the surface it is or not. But either on the surface or way deep down, you're a big fan of yourself. And some of us can cover it up better than others. But what will happen is when flattery and compliments come, and especially depending on who they come from, it can stoke the bee. It can awaken the beast. That beast may be asleep, you know, that beast may be down there latent, but it'll awaken the beast of self-importance that you've arrived. And this is why flattery often has force. We all think if someone would just see me or if I could just catch a break, then the world will know how great I am. Because deep down, we all think like we're amazing, awesome. We, we could run the country better than Obama. We could run the state better than Jerry Brown. We could run the Giants better than Bruce Bochy. We can do everything better than anybody who God's put in those places. We could sing better than these people on the radio. We could make better movies than these people who are making these movies. We can act better than these people who are acting. And when someone comes along and flatters us and gives us some compliments or gives us some attention and it can awaken this beast. And when those breaks come, you know, when someone notices us, it awakens our self-importance. And listen, self-importance is the foe of spirituality, of growing in Christ. The moment you think you're in control The moment you think you're important, the moment you think you're better than other people, you are now working against the Lord. I mean, I think of Luke 18.11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who thinks they're really important will be humbled. This happens really all the time. I mean, I mean, this is, this is, this is often the spark that sets an adulterous affair ablaze. Someone just notices you. They get you. They see how awesome you are. They see how wonderful you are. They see that you're not getting the attention you deserve. And it's that self-importance. I am. That's who I am. I am great. I am awesome. I am wonderful. And no one is noticing it. Look how amazing I am. And someone just starts feeding that beast. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Romans 12 3. Romans 12 16. All make humility, lowliness, the first mark of a worthy life. We talked about being an imitator of God. We talked about what it means to to, to walk worthily of the Lord already. Ephesians 4.1, Romans 12.3, and Romans 12.16 all make humility the first mark. 
Not thinking of yourself better than others. It's the first mark of a worthy life. And like with Hezekiah, the assaults will be subtle. The assaults will be constant. But we must learn to flee from every temptation to find security and comfort in ourselves. And we must cling to the promises of God. I mean, so often we want to think temptation is, is, is are the big waves, you know, and it's these really blatant, clear things. Listen, flee from every temptation. And I'm saying to flee from even the subtle temptations to begin to think of yourself as more important than other people. Of allowing compliments and flattery to identify you. To create your identity. That you find your identity in what other people are saying, you know, like, and who says it? When Merodach Baladon shows up and says, oh, you're a great king, you know, you've been healed. Ooh. So in closing, this this whole message has really been about identity. Not finding your identity in success or in failure. You find your identity in what God says about you. It's about not finding your identity in compliments or flattery. Or from certain people saying you're so awesome and wonderful and then believing it. And it's also not about finding your identity in insults. It's about finding your identity in what God says about you. I mentioned that quote earlier. I am a simple man. And without prayer, I am nothing. That's, that's, that's a good way to identify yourself. Listen, the real power of a life of faith comes from really living and applying what the Bible says. Not just like faking it, not just memorizing some verses. But really living it and really applying it. When the Bible says you're a beloved child of God, you do everything that's in your power and effort to live as if you were a beloved child of God and to believe that. To really apply that to your life. I am a beloved child of God. And if it takes you all the rest of this day to fight so that you can be believed just that one simple statement, then you do it. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says you are saved by faith, not by works. Really applying that. The Bible says that your identity rests in who God says you are. That's who God thinks you are. It's who God says you are. It's not who Merodach Baladon says you are. It's not who anybody else says you are other than God himself. The Bible says to not think highly of ourselves, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, or not to think more highly of ourselves than other people. And when when we live in the light of these truths, this is where the power of a life of faith really comes. And this is how our brothers and sisters can withstand beating and imprisonment. And this is how we can live joyfully right where we are, right here. When we really apply and believe and live what the Bible says. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.